0: Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture always talks about the fact that God's plan for salvation completely covers our sin. Sin is paid for by the work of Christ on the cross, but throughout every dispensation there are still things that we're supposed to do for post-salvation cleansing, and that differs from dispensation to dispensation. Under the Mosaic Law, there were various Levitical offerings, and in the church age, we simply uh, confess our sins to God in the privacy of our priesthood. So we take time before class to uh, have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study the Word, and then I open in prayer. So let's bow our heads together. join to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we can be here tonight. We're thankful that in your grace you have given us your Word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, God, the Holy Spirit, revealed these things down through the ages, Revealed them through the prophets and the apostles in many different ways, and many different forms. And Father, yet they have been collected together for us under the supervising ministry of your providential care, so that today we have a completed canon before us. And as we study through the revelation that you have given, we come to understand how you work in history, how you work in individuals' lives, and how you come to be glorified as your ways and your works are manifested in human history and in human lives. And now as we study these things in relation to Solomon and Israel in the Old Testament, we pray that it may give us a greater understanding of how great you are, how faithful you are, and how we can depend upon you in every situation in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last time... We studied in the earlier part of 1 Kings chapter 9 about how God appeared to Solomon a second time. If you remember, God appeared to him the first time back in 1 Kings chapter 3. Back in 1 Kings chapter 3, and there we get a particularly uh, insightful description of Solomon's uh, spiritual life. 1 Kings 3, 3 we read, now Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father David except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places now the reason there's that exception is not that he was into idolatry but that according to the mosaic law there was a there was a law related to a central sanctuary that all of Israel was supposed to worship God in one place, God regulates worship. Worship is never, in any dispensation, a matter of subjective opinion or whatever makes you uh, feel good or feel right. Christianity is based on uh, objective revelation from God, and it's not based on our own projections of the way we wish God was, the way we think God is, or what makes God more real to us. All those ideas really come out of 19th century religious liberalism, uh, something we've been studying in the History of Doctrine class on, on uh, Monday nights. What we see here, though, is a glimpse into Solomon's spiritual maturity, as we covered when we went through this the first time. Solomon loved the Lord, and then the next thing the verse says is he walked in the statutes uh, of his father David. In other words, he was obedient to God, walking in the ways of God, walking in the law, walking in the statutes of the law. All of these different phrases are synonyms indicating he was obedient to the law. That doesn't mean he was perfect or sinless. It doesn't mean that he was better than everybody else, but it means that in, in, in some total of his, of his life, you could say that Solomon was a man who was obedient to the Lord in his life. And that is your barometer, for defining your love for the Lord. All the way through Scripture, whether you look in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy or whether you go forward to the Gospel of John on into the first epistle of John, again and again and again, Scripture says that God measures our love for him on the basis of obedience. and That's not legalism. That is simply that God saying, if you love me, you will do what pleases me. If you don't love me, then you will be disobedient. And any parent can relate to that, that, that the way that children show their love for the parent is to follow their policies and their discipline and their rules in the home. And if they're disobedient, then they are not showing their love for their parents. And so again and again in Deuteronomy, God said that the way the Israelites were to manifest their love for him was to walk in his statutes, to put into practice the Mosaic law. And so we see this picture here of Solomon as a mature believer at the beginning of his reign. He is a young man. And we see the expression of that maturity because when God appears to him the first time, God makes him this incredible offer and says, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you. And Solomon asks for wisdom. He could have asked for power. He could have asked for riches. He could have asked for any number of things related to the details of life. But the thing that he asked from God is wisdom, that he might rule in wisdom according to the righteousness of God. And so God answers him in 1 Kings 3.11 and says, because you have asked, This thing, and have not asked for yourself long life, or you've not asked for riches for yourself. You haven't asked for the life of your enemies, and there's no sense of vindictiveness there. That's very important in light of what had gone on in the first two chapters. But you have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. I'm not only going to answer your prayer, God says, but I have, behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before, nor shall one like you arise after you. There's no ruler in history equivalent to Solomon. Solomon was just embodied all the greatest values we could ever hope to see in a ruler, and beyond that he had uh, an intelligence, an inquisitive mind, Uh, uh, He had tremendous skills. He was probably more brilliant than Leonardo da Vinci, and he probably did more than Leonardo da Vinci. But unfortunately, most of the records of that have been lost. So from this passage, we learn a couple of key principles that are going to work themselves out in the passage that we find ourselves in tonight, which is 1 Kings chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. And there's three principles that are embodied in the section that we're going to study from 1 Kings 9 10 through the end of chapter 10. <clears throat> now, before I give you these three principles, let me set the stage again, the framework for understanding this. As we move through any kind of <clears throat> narrative literature and history, any any of the historical books that are describing the events of, of Israel, the events and the lives of people, these are highly editorialized stories, highly editorialized narratives. God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who is picking these events. Just if you think about all the things that Solomon did and said, you think about all the things David did and said, and if you read through what is said about David and Solomon in first, first Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings. It really doesn't take up a whole lot of time. We know really, truly very little that we could know about their lives. But the Holy Spirit has picked that which is significant for his purpose, and his purpose ultimately and always relates to the glory of God. The other morning, I was uh, had my monthly uh, pastor study group, which I've been conducting for about two and a half years now, I think. And we've been studying principle of hermeneutics, going through Roy Zuck's book, Basic Bible Interpretation. And in the course of this particular chapter that we were studying, going over on uh, Monday morning, the chapter dealt with the, the fact that the Bible needs to be dealt with in terms of the kinds of literature that's there. You have poetry, you have legal literature, you have historical narrative, you have epistolary literature, and you interpret certain things a little bit differently depending on the kind of literature that they're in, just, to, just as, a, as a summary. For example, if you are reading a clause that is in iambic pentameter and in a Shakespearean sonnet, you're not going to interpret the words there in the same way you would in a 10-page legal contract if you ran across some of the same vocabulary. Because you know that if it's embedded in a legal contract that those words have very strict, rigid, legal connotation backed by precedent. Whereas when you get into poetry or any kind of drama, sometimes the words have a little broader meaning. And so it's important to pay attention to the kind of literature. And in narrative literature, what I've emphasized to the, to the men that were here the other morning... And what I've emphasized for my classes is that when you normally read, most people talk about the Bible as literature, and they talk about all the stories. You have stories of conflict and romance, and you have all these different elements that you find in good stories. And there's always a hero, and there's a bad guy, and there's conflict. And who is the hero? And I said, who's the hero in the story of David and Goliath? Everybody said, David wrong. The hero is God. In biblical narrative, the hero is always God. Always. Because God is the one that is being pictured behind all the stories, behind all the narrative that we have in Scripture, as the one who is providing the solution to man's problems. Man's problems are the basic core conflict that we see within every single one of these stories, his conflicts with, with his own sin nature. Conflicts with living in the world system, conflicts with paganism, his conflicts with uh, other human beings who are attacking him, or angels, demonic forces, whatever, within the angelic conflict. And so we have to uh, understand that what is going on in any of these stories ultimately goes back to revealing something about God. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that back going back to one of the reasons we're going through 1 Kings 1 one through 16, those first, I mean, just chapter 1 through 16, the reason we're going through that is as a, a prelude, as preface to our study of Elijah, and when I started, I wanted to do a series on Elijah and Elisha, the prep school teachers suggested that I cover the rest of the introductory part of 1 Kings and the conclusion of 2 Kings, because Nobody's ever, they, they knew really had done this, and they need to communicate these things to the kids in, in prep school. And so when I get into these sections and talk about this, I try to bring this out so that as the prep school teachers listen to these lessons, it gives them ideas and doctrines, topics that are, that are really fleshed out in these stories. Why do we need to learn the details that we're learning here? Because if you can't look at the uh, the elements of 1 Kings 9, 10 through the end of uh, chapter 10, what we see is is almost like the writer is mopping up a lot of loose ends. And he talks about Solomon's architectural projects and all of his building projects and how he organized the labor forces, and, and it talks about his, his navy, his maritime force, and and where they went throughout the world, how his fame spread throughout the world to the point that the Queen of Sheba heard about him and came up to uh, came came to visit him in Israel to see if all that she heard about Solomon was true. That no one that she had ever heard about in the whole world had the power, the wisdom, the riches, the wealth, the skill of Solomon. Did that all just tell us something about how magnificent Solomon was? And that she traveled the distance of probably 1500, 1800 miles in order to check out this particular story. And what she brought him as tribute was just an impressive uh, amount of gifts, ex- worth a, a, a fortune, worth several fortunes. So we stop and we say, well, why do we need to know this? Why has God the Holy Spirit revealed all this to us? And he's done it for, and it, we have to understand it within the context of what God has revealed in 1 Kings, and that is this promise. God says, I've given you a wise and discerning heart, but also, verse 13, I've also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you in all your days. The uniqueness of Solomon would stand out as a beacon of God's grace and blessing to the entire world. In the New Testament, God sends the church out into the world. But in the Old Testament, God's under the Mosaic law, the idea was that if Israel walked in obedience, God would bless them so magnificently. They would be such a, a, a powerhouse uh, of wealth and knowledge and sophistication and advancement that the entire world would want to come to Israel to learn what the secret of their success was and the secret of their success would be their walk with God and their obedient walk with God, and that's exactly what was going on with Solomon. So what we see here, and these as a backdrop to this study of 1 Kings, not in the last half of 1 Kings 9, 1 Kings 10, is number one that God is always faithful to His promise, no matter how how much we fail. God is faithful even when we're failures, and we know that principle, and it just exaggerates the grace of God, and that's what this whole episode does. It exaggerates the grace of God, that we can't outdo God's grace. And no matter what the situation is, no matter what failures we may have in our past, we understand that, especially in the church age, because Jesus Christ has already paid the price for all of our sins, and because we are accepted into Uh, God's presence on on the basis of Christ's righteousness, not our righteousness, not our failures, not our successes, but totally because of what Christ did, then that puts us in a position of strength so that we can live life with a tremendous sense of confidence and energy because we are secure in that relationship with God. So we recognize that God is always faithful to his promise, and he goes beyond his promise. That's a second point. God's grace goes beyond our thoughts and our imagination. It is more than we could ever uh, ask for. And in Philippians 4.19, we have a promise related to this for church-age believers. As Paul says, my God will supply all your needs according to, and that word indicates according to a standard, and that standard is the, his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And his, the riches in Christ Jesus are beyond anything that we could ever imagine. We could never outdo that resource, that reservoir of wealth that God has because, of his, because it is in, infinite. And then the third point, it's here that we see Solomon demonstrating in his life the principle which he states so clearly in Proverbs, in Proverbs one five, he says that it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And we see that played out in his life as a young man and through the first 20 years or so of his reign when he is walking with God. It is the fear of the Lord that is the starting point for his success. Everything in his life is there because he had his relationship to God Squared away and secure from the very, very beginning. So let's turn now to uh, 1 Kings chapter 9, 1 Kings chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 10. Now we've already seen his prayer, we've seen the dedication, we've seen God's answer, and now there's a shift, and it's a bit of a summary of Solomon's. What Solomon has done over this 20 years uh, contemporaneous with his building of the the temple and of the palace and all of his architectural works. We read in verse 10, now it happened at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the two houses, that's the temple and the palace, the house of the Lord and the king's house. And so the first thing that we focus on is Solomon's uh, building program and his alliance with Hiram. The king of Tyre. And verse 11, Hiram, the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and gold. So if you think about this and work out the details here, what we learn is the tremendous uh, trade agreements that must have gone, that took place between Hiram, who's the king of Tyre up in what is now Lebanon, and Solomon. And so as Hiram provides the material For the building of the uh, temple and the palace, Solomon is going to pay him. And so Hiram supplies him with cedar, with cypress, with gold, as much as he desired. Where did Tyre get the gold? Now, there is an intriguing question. And there's a lot of speculation on that because they were Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians, as we see in this passage were uh, seamen, and they, were, they had the merchant marine of the ancient world, and they sailed all over the world. And there seems to be evidence, although there's some doubt that's cast on some of it, so I can't be uh, dogmatic, but there seems to be evidence that people have found here and there to indicate that Phoenician sailors made it to the North American continent long before the time of Christ. And there's evidence of other other things that have been found: Roman coins and other things, all through the period from at least seven or eight hundred BC, maybe earlier, all the way up to the time of Christ and even uh, after the time of Christ. And so this is this has intrigued people, and you always have people come up with various speculations as to where uh, Tyre got the gold. There's no evidence of gold mining in Lebanon. You don't find evidence of played out gold mines in uh, you go up going up into the hills above Beirut. You don't find evidence of these gold mines in other areas around there. So where did they get the gold? They got it from exploring the world. They got it from establish, establishing mines in different places. We know that there were Phoenician colonies in North Africa, later on Carthage, which is uh, <clears throat> in North Africa. Carthage was a Phoenician colony. They had colonies in Spain. They had. They clearly made it to uh, England. They made it uh, <clears throat> down around uh, <clears throat> Cape Horn. They made it uh, very conceivably to India and other places. So uh, we don't know where they got the, got the gold, but it was an impressive, an incredible amount of gold that's, descri- that's described here. So King Solomon gave Hiram in return twenty cities in the land of Galilee. So we we have to do some good map work tonight to figure out where we are. And here we just have the upper half of the land of Israel. The body of water that you see there in the in the screen here is the um that's the Sea of Galilee right here. The Sea of Galilee are the actually it's a lake the the uh, English folks who translated The the, uh, English translators who translated the Lhasa Sea didn't understand it also referred to a lake. So that's the Sea of Galilee. And so this area up here, starting right right about here, if you can see, there's this uh, diagonal brown shading here. And that's the uh, Carmel Ridge. Modern Haifa is right here on this little point here. It's the only modern harbor, or the only harbor in modern Israel. And then just below here is, is Mount Carmel, which is one of the highest points uh, in this area just to the right of the, that area is the Valley of Esdralon or the Valley of Armageddon. And so this area up here is the area of, of, of Lebanon, I mean of, uh, of Galilee. And then you see this area just to the upper part of the screen here along the coast. That's the area that is just south of Tyre. And so this is part of modern modern Lebanon, and it was it was various cities in this particular area in Galilee, according to the text that uh, Solomon gave to Hiram but Hiram wasn't just real impressed with these these uh these cities, and I don't know why, and this is a, a something that is concerned to uh Many people question this because this is some of the most fertile area, some of the most productive area, uh, productive land in all all of Israel. So apparently for some reason Hiram uh, was not pleased with this and he called it the land of Kabul. This is in verse 13. So he said, what kind of cities are these which you've given me, my brother? And he called them the land of Kabul as they are to this day. And the word, uh, Kabul indicates some sort of worthless land, something that's good for nothing. And in fact, it seems like, uh, Hiram just didn't appreciate this gift in light of all that he did, and he ended up giving this land back to Solomon, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 8, uh, verse, uh, verse 2. So Hiram then, uh, verse 11, we read that, um, Verse 14, Hiram sent the king 120 talents of gold. Now, you all are very familiar with the fact that I'm just not the most brilliant mathematician around. Maybe somebody there can work these numbers out real quick. But 120 talents of gold is 9,000 pounds of gold. And so you've got to figure out what's that. Gold is weighed and average so that's 12 ounces to the pound. Isn't that right? So you multiply what? 16? It's still 16. I thought gold was weighed differently. No? Twelve ounces is Troy. Twelve ounces is Troy. That's gold is weighed Troy, right? I knew I was right. It's 12 ounces. pound of gold weighs less than a pound of feathers. Always remember that. I learned that when I was a little, little boy reading Ripley's Believe It or Not. So a pound of gold is 12 ounces. So you multiply 12 times 9,000, and that gets you, 100, what, 108,000 or a million... And a million and eight one million eighty thousand ounces of gold, and if you multiply that by a thousand, you come out with about what one, yeah, a $1 billion dollars worth of gold so this is this is a sizable chunk of change one hundred and forty four thousand ounces. Okay, well, 120. Well, that's right. Well, no, nine thousand pounds. Well, yeah, and that's the problem that we're not always sure exactly how some of these things weighed out. So that was why I didn't get a final, final answer this afternoon as I was checking different sources. But it's worth somewhere in the neighborhood of about five hundred million dollars and a billion dollars. So this is a sizable uh, chunk of gold that. Um, that Hiram has sent to Solomon. And most of this gold is melted down and put into the temple. And that is why the temple of Solomon was considered just this incredibly glorious thing. As, the, as you would walk into Jerusalem in the early morning and the sun was coming up over the Mount of Olives, and it would hit that gold building. And the brilliance of it was almost blinding. And there was no place like that on all the earth. And that's the theme of this whole section, is because of God's blessing of Solomon, because of his walk with the Lord, because of his blessing of Israel, that there's no place like this on all the earth. This is an incredible place. It's wealth. If you go through and you add all these things up, the amount of that they had of gold and silver is just beyond our comprehension and that's because of God's God's blessing on Israel wanting to make it stand out among all the nations uh, all the nations on the earth so the first thing we look at is how Solomon dealt with his trade partner uh, Hiram and that's covered in 1 Kings 9:10 through 14 and we see the tremendous uh, wealth of that project. Then, second thing that we see is an additional note in relation to his construction projects. And <clears throat> he starts off talking about the labor force that Solomon conscripted. He really had two labor forces. One was a slave labor force, we learn about in uh, verses 21 or 20 to 22. Non-Jews living in the land, the remnants of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Hittites that are still living in the land became part of forced labor teams that were responsible for the building of these uh, projects, the palace and the temple. And then the uh, Jews were not forced into slavery, but they were also organized into into different teams related to uh, labor and related to the military, because as the wealth of Israel expands under the blessing of God, they have to protect their wealth. Just a basic principle of Scripture is that any person who has wealth, any person who owns property, any nation that has property has the right and to defend themselves and should defend themselves. And so it's there is as as Israel expands their wealth they have to have a standing ar- army in order to protect the nation against mar- marauding bands who would seek to plunder them and to attack them. So in verse 15 we read a summary of his building projects four building projects are mentioned first of all the temple which we've already studied in detail. Second, uh, his own palace, which took even longer for him to build because it was a much more extensive project. And then third, we have the area known as the Milo. And this is an odd term for us. We don't use a term like that today. And this refers to building projects around uh, the city of Jerusalem. And I have one picture here. This is of modern Jerusalem. And what we see in the foreground here, if you look here, you see there's a there's a road, a street that runs down this side of this hill and then it starts to curve around right here. okay, y'all see that? Okay, now this area in the middle, right here, you can you see the arrow, okay? That that is really a ridge line, and that's the old city of David, which was the city of where the city was during David's time and during Solomon's time. And up on the hill above it, you see the current walls that were built by of the uh, around the Dome of the Rock. These walls were built by uh, Suleiman uh, the Magnificent. But at the time of Solomon, well, you had uh, to the left of the Temple Mount here. And coming down where you have these houses here and down where this street runs, you had a valley, a very pronounced valley called the Tyrapean Valley or the Valley of the Cheesemakers. And that was partially, Solomon began to fill that in so that he could, that the city would start to to flatten out. Also, there were various uh, uh, terraces between the upper part of the city of David. And the hill where the temple was built, and so he needed to level that in. And that's what the Milo is is he's leveling out the land there and landscaping it so that it's easier for people to move up to the temple Mount and back into the back into the city of David. So it includes several different things related to terracing. The, the uh, area between the Temple Mount and the and the city of David. The fourth thing that he is mentioned here is that he uh, rebuilds the wall of Jerusalem. All of that has to do with what the building projects in Jerusalem proper. Those four things: the ten, the house of the Lord, the temple, his own house, the palace for the king, the Milo, and the wall of Jerusalem. And then three cities are mentioned. Three cities are mentioned, and these cities are in different parts of the land, and they are key cities for Solomon. The first one that's mentioned is the one that is to the farthest in the north, and that is Hatsor. And Hatsor is located about maybe 10 miles. To the north of the Sea of Galilee, and it is a <clears throat> basically a ruin today. Last year on our trip, we visited it. Uh, this is one of the signs there with the uh, drawing, a uh, reconstruction of the Solomonic Gate. And if you can, you probably can't read it, but this, the paragraph of explanation down the lower left hand uh, corner says that the connection between Hatsor, Megiddo, and Gezer is reflected in the following verse that describes Solomon's building activities and then quotes the passage we're looking at, uh, 1 Kings chapter 9 verse 15. And so these uh, walls were constructed and the fortification was put there in the north in order to protect the land from those who would be uh, invading. And today, this gives you some idea Of what's left of those gates that you just saw pictured. Now, let me back this up a minute. See, there's the artist drawing there. And so that you can see those small little black figures are the people walking into the, walking into the gates. And now here we see that uh, we've lost about two thirds of the stonework, but they were quite large and quite massive. Here's another shot looking from the top back down on the on walls, uh, the remains of the walls going around the city of Hazor. And this was a chariot city, just like the next one we'll look at, Megiddo. He His chariot cavalry was housed there, and so he had stables for horses, and he had to have all of the, the grooms and the blacksmiths and all the different... Uh, people, logistical people, needed to take care of all the animals and all of the equipment. So these were uh, quite large fortifications, and they sat astride major trading routes to protect the, the uh, caravans that were bringing all of these valuable goods into Israel and out from Israel, and all of the imports and exports. Now the next slide, we move down, see the circle to the top is Megiddo, and that moves up. It's not at the northern part of the, of the region of Galilee, but it's about two-thirds up, and it's not too far. When you're standing there at Hotzor, you can look to the uh, west, and you can see the, the mountains that are just, you know, half a mile away right here, and that is in modern uh, Lebanon. Then you move south, down straight south to to um, well, I went too far. One minute. This is Megiddo here. I was thinking, see it's so small, I can't even read it. Let me go back to my previous map. Okay, here's, here's Hotsor in the north. Right here is the, you can see this kind of ridge line that runs down this way. That's the border with Lebanon. So when you're right here at Hotsor, you're only a couple of miles from the Lebanese border. So you move south, and down here you have Megiddo. And they've uncovered about 27 different layers of civilization. Depends on who you read. Some people say 22. The sign there says 27. I've read three different guidebooks. They all tell you a different number. Uh, depends on which year, which archaeologist you're talking about. So here we have the city of Megiddo, which is, and it's a it's a huge mound, and it's up on the hill, and the Hebrew word for hill is har, and so. Megiddo is referred to as the Hill of Megiddo or Har Megiddo, which is where you get the word Armageddon. And it overlooks, it it's, sits right on a major trade route that would come up from the coast and cross the Carmel Ridge right here. And as you come into the Valley of Esdralon, uh, Megiddo was there as a as a fortress city to protect that particular trade route. And its remains are also... Uh, quite massive, much more extensive than what we have up at Hatsor, And here we have a picture of the, some of these Solomonic gates uh, that were built at the entryway into the city of, of Megiddo. A couple of different slides here showing you how massive these gates were. You have the lower gates, and then you walk in and you go into the upper gates. And so this is about all that's left of the foundations of those gates these days, and yet they're still pretty massive. They, they stand about 15 feet high, and you walk around. This is the lower gate here, and then you can walk on up and up through the remains of the upper gates. Then the third city that's mentioned is the city of Geezer. Gies- and Geezer has not had a lot of development in the last 15 years, but just in the last year or so, they've gone and they've cleaned out all the rubble and all the Uh, undergrowth that has grown over uh, what they had uncovered uh, some years ago, and they're beginning to do work again there. Now, I've never been there, so I had to pull this uh, picture off the Internet, and you lose a lot of of its clarity, so I had to make it somewhat smaller. But you also see another uh, sketch of what these gates looked like. They were quite massive, and everybody who entered into the city had to go through this. You think security's tough at the airport here. Well, that's what's going on here. You had a uh, you had military uh, detachment that uh, you had these little rooms off to the side. That's where they slept, and that's where they would take people and strip search them and those kinds of things. So you had the same kind of pro- security problems then that you do now, maybe not quite as extensive, but uh, you still had that. And this is a shot of the remains of the uh, Solomonic Gate at Gezer. Okay, so that gives you some idea of these building projects. So he's building these four projects in Jerusalem proper, and he builds these cities where he is going to house uh, house military units. Now, one other thing. I want to go back to the map on here on Gezer. Here's Jerusalem. Gezer sat astride the Via Maris, which was the major trade route, that started down in Egypt and came up the coast and then went through this area. The coastland here is called the Shephalah and goes through the Shephalah on up towards uh, towards Megiddo. And so when Gezer was still in the hands of the Canaanites, it prevented trade with Egypt. And so when uh, we have a notation here in verse 16 that when Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter, that as a dowry, Pharaoh came up and defeated the Canaanites at Gezer and then gave that to Solomon as a wedding present. And what that did was to open up the trade route, so now you had a free flow of goods from Egypt all the way to to Israel and then all the way up the coast through Lebanon and then all the way up to modern Turkey, which would have been the uh, Hittite Empire at that particular time. So you see that what's happening here, there's a lot of, What undergirds a lot of this are just basic things related to economics, that God, through giving them military strength and power, is able to open up the trade routes, and you develop a a monopoly. Israel controls all the major trade routes. If you're going from, from from the Assyrian Empire in the east, anywhere in the east or east of Assyria, you're going from anywhere in that direction and you're coming through and you want to trade with the Hittite Empire or you want to trade with Egypt, you have to go through Israel. And if you're in Egypt and you want to trade with anybody, you have to go through Israel. And if you're the Hittite Empire and you want to trade with Egypt, you have to go through Israel. So Israel sat astride the, the land routes and controlled them and took tribute from everybody. They taxed all the all the trade goods. And so they made a good income from that. But at the same time, Solomon is in a partnership with uh, Hiram, the king of Tyre, and the Phoenicians control the waterways. So if you're trading with anybody, if you do it by land, you've got to deal with Israel. If you're doing it by sea, you have to deal with Phoenicia. And so Hiram and and, uh, Solomon basically controlled all trade in the ancient world. And this is part of the way in which God expanded the power and the privilege of Israel. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just good old-fashioned capitalism. And there's not anything wrong with that. And we could develop all kinds of tremendous economic principles out of that to show how important it is to to be engaged in that kind of trade and how that benefited everyone because everyone in the nation prospered as a result of that, and that's what is described here. But what made it possible wasn't because they had a great economic theory. They had never had the opportunity to read Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. Uh, They had never, never read Hayek. They had never read... Uh, they didn't know anything about the Chicago School of Economics or the Austrian School of Economics. They didn't understand any of those principles. What they understood was that they needed to walk with God. And it reinforces the principle that the problem we've had since the Enlightenment is we want to reduce everything in history to direct causation related to obs- things that humans can observe and understand with their little puny minds, and you can't do it. What the Bible shows is that everything that happens in history, which includes economics, which includes the rise and the fall of empires, has to do ultimately with the plan of God, the purposes of God, and the spiritual uh, richness of the people and their relationship with God. When the people are walking with God, there's an economic boom when the because they're doing things the right way when you're walking with God it's not a magical thing it's not okay let's go take our bibles as our little christian talisman and as long as we read our bible every day and pray every day uh this is going to happen that's not what what the re, the thing is when you're studying the word of God and you're doing what God says to do because God is the creator of everything in the universe. God creates the political laws, the economic laws, all these principles. Things work the way they do because God designed them that way. And when we are walking in conformity to the creator, then the, um, the unseen consequences of that, the residual effects of that are material blessing and stability, but it's not a direct line cause and effect. It's the unseen consequences, the unintended consequences of having that rich spiritual life and the people living and thinking in a way that is conformed to reality as God defined it and not according to their own uh, psychotic wish. And the more a nation and a people get away from the reality of God's word, the more they get away from worshiping God as the creator and understanding the principles that he's built into the creation, the further they drift from that, they begin to live on on debt, they begin to uh, spend money they don't have, they begin to misidentify problems, they begin to make bad decisions from positions of weakness, all of these things begin to happen, and so there, there starts to be a buildup of negative effects and negative consequences, and you start also realizing a lot of unintended consequences. You may think that a certain decision is a good decision, and so you make that decision, and not only does it turn out to be not such a great decision, but it has a bunch of unintended negative consequences and and they all seem to snowball and over a course of twenty or thirty years, all of a sudden you wake up and you realize that you have that just like the United States, you've built the entire economy on a hope and a dream. Now, ever since we got off the gold standard uh, with nixon the the only thing that that holds up the American dollar is our confidence in it. It's just floating on thin air, which floats on your confidence, and that's it. And so it's very easy for man to try to manipulate the value of money by just printing more money, and that causes inflation. And that's one of the reasons we're having the high rise of gas prices. It's not just that there's a global, uh, you know, a lot of speculation in the market and other factors. But it's also because as the dollar weakens, uh, the value of, of, of commodities begins to go up because the dollar is worth less. And we saw the same kind of thing happening in the, um, in the late 70s. And, and under the Carter administration, they did the same kind of thing. They, they <clears throat> increased the uh, amount of money in circulation. And you remember those wonderful days of double-digit. Uh, interest rates and double digit inflation and reason and, and in order to pay off the debt from the Vietnam, Vietnam War with dollars that were worth less. And so the government's doing the same kind of thing because in the arrogance of man we think that we can actually control our environment. And so that, that we see that in the whole thing with global warming. We see that in, in, not that the issue isn't is there global warming or not the issue is can, does man actually do anything to cause it? And there's more and more studies that show no man doesn't do anything to cause temperature variation. This all has to do with just the meteorological system. So anyway, I'm getting off track here. But what we see is that the underlying principles of why and how the blessing of God works in relationship to obedience uh, to his word. And so we go on to read about Solomon's building programs. In uh, verse 17, he built... Uh, uh, Gezer and Lower Beth Horon. Now let's go back to our map here. Lower and Upper Beth Horon exist right up here. Here's Beit which is where they hung up uh, Saul's body on the wall after after uh, he committed suicide. But right up here on the uh, south we- uh, southeast end of the Valley of Esdraelon. You had the this the upper and lower Beth Horn and they were designed to once again provide protection for travelers and on the trade route. So you see that Solomon isn't just building for building's sake; he's building to protect his his mercantile investments and to promote trade with other nations. And these other cities, Balad and Tadmor in the wilderness, they're down in the south in uh, Judah. And they're designed to be fortifications down, way down here in the south in the Negev in order to protect the southern border from any sort of military, uh, military incursion. So what we see here is a, a strong security for the nation, a strong economy. But what gives the whole situation its real strength is their obedience to the Lord, which is which is uh, seen in Solomon, because Solomon is so strong in his spiritual life, he becomes a spiritual leader for the people, setting that example, and it motivates and has a trickle-down effect throughout the entire nation. Verse 19, we read that all the storage cities of Solomon had, cities for his chariots, like Hatsor and Megiddo, cities for his cavalry, whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. Verse 20 down through verse uh, 22 describes his organization of the various uh, uh, labor forces, the, uh, cons- the conscripted labor of the uh, pagans, the Canaanites who are still in the land, plus the organization of the Israelites into uh, into his military, verse 22, but of the children of Israel, Solomon made no forced laborers because they were men of war and his servants, his officers, his captains, commanders of his chariots and of his cavalry. Now, earlier when we read uh, back in chapter 6 and 7 about his building the temple, he organized Jews into teams to build the temple and parts of the temple had to be built by Levites, but they were not conscripted labor. And here he focuses on those uh, Israelites that were part of the military, part of the defense force for uh, for Israel. Verse 20, uh, 23, others were chiefs of the officials who were over Solomon's work, 550 who ruled over the people who did the work. So he had 550 overseers who watched over uh, those who did the, the hard labor. And verse 24, but Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house which Solomon had built for her. So she had a separate dwelling. She did not live in the palace with the king. She had a separate house. And that was probably due to the fact that she was the daughter of Pharaoh because of her position and because of her family. She was given her own uh, place to live. Talks about in building the Milo, verse 25. Now three times a year Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar He had built for the Lord, and that is a reminder in this section of the strength of his spiritual life and the strength of his relationship with the Lord. And this would have been in relationship to the three uh, feasts, the three annual feasts that required all Jews, they're called pilgrimage feasts, for all Jews to come to Jerusalem. And this would have been the time of Passover or Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would be in the springtime then some two months later, 50 days later, Pentecost, and then in the fall, the Feast of Weeks, or Harvest, uh, excuse me, the the Feast of Booze, or In-Gathering, called Tabernacles. So, the Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles would have been the three times that he uh, offered sacrifices and offerings, and peace offerings on the altar which he had built for the Lord, and he burned incense with them on the altar that was before the Lord, so he finished the temple. And in verse 26, King Solomon also built a fleet of ships. He has a navy at ezion Gaber. Now, do I have a, I don't think I've got that on the map. That is down at Modern Elat, and that is on the, uh, on the uh, Gulf of Aqaba, which is the eastern f- uh, fork of the Red Sea. And it's up at the very, very tip, very hot place. When we were there, two years ago, and we walked across the border from Jordan. Uh, it was very very barren. Off in the distance, you have the barren Judean hills, and you're on an asphalt walkway that's about 60 feet wide with, with a, a cyclone fence on each side. And you have to walk about uh, 75 yards, it seemed a lot further, from one from Jordan over to Israel. And the temperature was 117 in the shade, and you had a wind chill of about 135 <laughs> because you had a Scirocco wind coming off of that Judean desert. And it was like walking into a hair dryer. It was just a lot of fun. But it's just absolutely beautiful there. And the next day we got a chance to go out on the Red Sea and to swim a little and do some um, parasailing and have a little fun. But that's in Geber. That is where uh, Solomon had his... Uh, major naval uh, station and where he had his fleet on the shore of the Red Sea near the land of Edom, which is on the opposite side. Then verse 27, Then Hiram said his servants with the fleet, seamen who need, knew the sea. They were skilled seamen. They knew how to use a compass. They had all the navigational charts. They had all the maps. They had circumnavigated Africa. They had gone up into the Atlantic and up into the North Atlantic, there's evidence they may have come across into North America. They had gone around the Persian Gulf over to India. And so these were the navigators who were on uh, Solomon's ships. So the, the Israelites provided the seamen and the leadership and the guidance and, and technological uh, skill for sailing came from Hiram. And so they sailed everywhere. And some, some of these um, ships were told, were gone for as long as three years. Where could they have gone in three years' time? You know, my suspicion is they, they traveled a lot further than most people want to give them credit. We'll get into the uh, some of the details of this next time. Verse 28 we read, and they went to Ophir. Nobody knows where Ophir is. Some say it was down by uh, Yemen or across the... Uh, Red Sea over in northern Africa somewhere. Nobody knows where it was. Some people postulate it was in North America. Others postulate that it was in South America. Others think that maybe it was in India. If they were gone for three years, it could have been anywhere in the world uh, where they found gold and they were mining the gold to bring uh, bring back to Israel. So verse 28, we're told, they went to Ophir and acquired 420 talents of gold from there, And brought it to King Solomon. Now 420 talents of gold is 32,000 pounds or 16 tons of gold. And I'll leave it to you all to figure that out as to how much that would be worth. If 120 talents was worth about 500 million to a billion dollars, how much do you think 420 talents Almost four times that amount would be worth. This is the wealth of Israel under Solomon. This is unbelievable. We can't fathom this because our, what we see in all these architect, archaeological drawings and everything is just this, these people living in these stone houses. But what did they have on the exterior of those stone houses? How much gold was available? And when we get into the next chapter, uh, talks about again, gives us comparisons for uh, different things in their economy and we and the point of all of this is to help us un- to understand that god's grace is beyond anything that we can possibly imagine. And when we walk with the Lord and that when He is our priority in life, then God is the one who is going to bless us beyond anything that we can imagine. and I'm not saying that it's going to be material or in terms of your bank account. It can be in numerous ways that God is going to bless and prosper you, but it's the result of making your relationship with God the number one priority in your life. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that that it's not our success in life, our our, uh, prosperity is not simply dependent upon our grasp of uh, basic business principles or economic principles or management principles, but that fundamentally there's an unseen qualification in the equation, and that is our spiritual life. And it's true for us as individuals, and it's true for us as a nation. And that ultimately that the blessing, the prosperity, the real wealth of soul that we can have that must always precede physical wealth so that we know how to properly use it, comes from our relationship with you where we learn that real meaning and happiness in life only comes from our walk with you. Father, I pray that you challenge us with these principles that we might recognize, look, evaluate our own lives to see that our our focus is where it should be and away from the details of life as a source for happiness and put, put our focus on our relationship with you, our knowledge and application of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.